Hello, I'm Richard Sennett, and I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening uh, to uh, this uh, lecture preceded by a, a slight bit of ceremonial, uh, 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 a slight ceremonial event uh, given uh, by Gerald Frug, who's professor of law at Harvard University. And the occasion for his lecture here is that he's been awarded uh, James Sterling Prize uh, by uh, the Canadian Centre for Architecture and the London School of Economics, LSE Cities. It's a joint venture uh, uh, that seeks to, to uh, single out uh, uh, great urbanists at, at, at uh, uh, working today, and uh, Professor Frug is certainly one of the greatest. For the the award was originally given in uh, in Canada, uh, but we're very fortunate that Marco Zardini from the Canadian Centre of Architecture is in London today, and he's going to say a little bit now, if you would, about the award and uh, about why Gerald Frug. Uh, was given it. So, uh. so it is really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I don't take too much time just uh, to um, uh, introduce this uh, lecture of tonight in uh, this kind of uh, strange uh, mm, definition of a kind of a prize, is a prize which is given to a lecture. Uh, and it was conceived at the beginning from the Canadian Centre and the London School of Economics um, as an effort to um, sustain or to push for uh, interdisciplinary thinking uh, on the field of uh, urban issues. Uh, it was conceived uh, years ago as uh, the James Sterling Memorial Lectures on the City, as a, an homage to uh, architect James Sterling, who believed that in a certain way urban design is an integral part of architectural practice that is very important for uh, our side as a Canadian Center of Architecture to always link this kind of uh, uh, architectural work to a kind of uh, general urban concern. The initiative was also based and my quoting Neil Obaus, who played a very important role uh, as a member of the LSE and later of CCA governance, um, on the belief that at a certain moment in history, the most pertinent thinking about the social consequences of architecture and urbanism comes not from the center of current debate, but rather from the periphery. I always like to quote that because that gives us also justification for the Canadian Center for Architecture being in Montreal, not to be totally cut off from the current discussion. The prize is a biannual, and uh, uh, the previous uh, uh, recipients of this uh, prize were Robert Maguri and Marianne Ray, uh, who addressed uh, the, from a kind of Los Angeles point of view, the um, Beijing uh, contemporary uh, transformation. Eyal Weisman, who addressed the issues of the Harvard theory 
um, applied to um, uh, war tactic and theory dealing with the Israel-Palestinian situation. And originally the first one was Teddy Cruz dealing with the idea of the border in between North America and Mexico. Um, this time uh, the jury unanimously decided to uh, give the award to Professor Gerald Frug. Uh, we think that uh, uh, the issue of uh, urban governance is uh, really becoming more and more important. I'm sure that tonight uh, uh, Jerry will uh, uh, show this to you with a very precise uh, case relating to the specific situation of England and London. Um, I would like not to take more of your time. I would like to leave uh, the word to Richard Sennett, who was a member of the jury, and uh, later Jerry Frug. Thank you very much. And I think that uh, the presentation of uh, Jerry Frug tonight will be as interesting as it has been, even more considering the case study that he will uh, bring to your attention than the one that he gave to the Canadian Center in Montreal. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I've cut down my, my introductory remarks from the original 40 minutes uh, to something much uh, uh, less, although I could talk endlessly about uh, uh, the work of uh, Gerald Frug. Um, I guess the simplest way to present him to you is that he is someone who really transformed the whole uh, field of urban law. In fact, he created it, in a way. Uh, 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 legal scholars and, and lawyers who dealt with uh, the city uh, had long looked at building and zoning regulations in a very, very narrow uh, framework. Uh, quite bureaucratic, not very self-critical. And uh, thanks to the work of uh, uh, Gerald Frug, uh, this field was radically expanded uh, to uh, take into account questions of governance, uh, questions of participation, and the relationship of the city to democratic theory. So he's had a transformative effect on uh, the way in which um, uh, the legal profession and legal practitioners have uh, dealt uh, with the urban environment. Um, I'm not going to mention to you that he was, or dwell at length on the fact that he was the teacher of Barack Obama. He's taught many, many other students at Harvard. Uh, prior to uh, teaching, however, he was himself a practitioner practitioner, and it's perhaps something less well known about him, he ran the New York City uh, Health Service, which in the time that he ran it had the same aspirations that the NHS has had uh, here in Britain. And uh, by all accounts, this was a time in which uh, someone who is not a doctor uh, enabled medical care in New York City, particularly for poor people, to really reach an enormously high level. So he's somebody who is involved 
deeply in the world of practice as well as in the world of scholarship. Now, it's very opportune that you've come to talk to us this week, since, as many of you will know, the localism bill is going uh, through Parliament today and tomorrow? Today and tomorrow. Tomorrow. And which will have a transformative effect on many of the aspects of the way cities are governed. I have to confess that when I downloaded it and saw that it was 446 pages, I gave up. And you may have, the similar, you may have a similar reaction to it. Uh, and fortunately, Professor Frug is going to explain the bill to us in a more concise form. Uh, and my suspicion is that he will not merely explain but critically um, explicate uh, what are the stakes in this monumental change that uh, the coalition government has put through. Um, we'll, we'll work tonight as we, as, as we always do. How long do you speak? 45 minutes? 45, yeah. And uh, then we have roving mics, and you can... Um, Professor Fu, oddly enough for a lawyer, seems to like to argue and discuss. And uh, if you have questions to put to him, that's great. If you have arguments to put to him, even, even better. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Gerald Fruit. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to Mirko and the LSE people for the Sterling Prize. It's wonderful to be here. I am going to talk for 45 minutes. It, uh, don't pray that it'll be shorter. Uh, put on your body clock as if you're a university student. Uh, some of you are university students. Uh, I want to talk tonight about democracy. In the UK and the United States, the democratic nature of our political system is often treated as unchallengeable. I take a different view. I think that the people are losing faith in elected democratic governance, even at the local level. Tonight, I want to describe and criticize some of the current ways in which elected city government is being undermined. In this part of my talk, I will focus on the localism bill. Now under consideration by this country's parliament, the third reading is today and tomorrow, as Richard said, a bill which is being trumpeted as increasing, not de decreasing local power. In the second part of my talk, I will describe an alternative conception of the decentralization of power, one very different from the one embraced by the localism bill. This alternative is enshrined in the South African Constitution. South African Constitution. The South African conception I will argue, is a much better way to think about localism than the one offered by the localism bill. This is the second of two talks I've given as the recipient of the Sterling Prize. The first was in Montreal in October. In Mo Montreal, I focus on the ways in which local government decision-making has been fragmented by, for example, allocating power to non-democratic forms, such as quangos and public-private partnerships instead of elected government. Tonight, tonight's talk will be on a different topic. I want to focus here on elected democratic governance itself. As in Montreal, I start with the assertion that every form of urban governance has a structure, 
By this I mean there are rules that determine who has the power to decide how to deal with the problems cities face, whether the problems concern the environment, transportation, education, crime, housing, or any other problem. This governance structure is designed by people you can name, by parliament here in the UK and by state legislatures in the United States. I've entitled these lectures The Architecture of Governance in order to emphasize that this design is like an architectural design. Every government structure embodies ideas that can be described, criticized, and redesigned to make it work better. These ideas are man-made. They are part of our built environment. Like the physical construction of buildings and landscape, the design of the government structure influences the way cities develop. As a result, they shape the lives of all of us. The architecture of democratic governance in the UK, the United States, and much of the world is built on the division of power among different levels of government. National governments, state governments, regional governments, city governments, borough governments, and neighborhood governments can all be organized democratically. Everywhere, more than one of these levels of government, in some places all of them, make critical public policy decisions. The result of the splintering decision-making authority has been bureaucratic delay, conflict, gaps in coverage, duplication, and all too often paralysis. It is therefore not surprising that there is a loss of faith in the ability of democratic government to make anything happen. That pessimism often turns out to be accurate. The key question is, what should we do about this problem? Both the localism bill and the South African Constitution propose answers to this question. Neither one embraces the centralization of power as the answer. You've all heard people say that to make progress, we need to be more like China or Singapore. China can get things done, people say. Here, everything takes forever or is impossible. Both the localism bill and the South African Constitution rightly reject this appeal to centralized control. The history of unchecked centralized power in this world is not a happy one. To reform democratic government, both the localism bill and the South African Constitution adopt a different course. Both aim to strengthen local decision-making to help you understand the architecture of governance, I will concentrate in this talk on the differences in the way they do it. As in Montreal, I intend to discuss these alternative ideas at a particular level of generality, one that parallels Kevin Lynch's book, Good City Form. I'm not here to propose an ideal government structure for this city, let alone for every city in the world. There is no one structure for democratic governance that works everywhere, just as there's no good city form. Still, as Lynch suggested about good city form, there are some general ideas about city governance that are worth exploring everywhere. That's what I intend to offer here tonight. Let's turn first to the localism bill. I'm going to criticize this bill, even though since I'm an outsider, you might think I have no business doing so. It's true. I might make mistakes in what I'm about to say. But that's okay. You're here to correct me. I'm going to talk about the localism bill despite its risks because it so nicely captures what seems to me a general consensus about how to decentralize power, a consensus that I think builds the wrong structure for democratic governance. 
I don't see myself as taking a political position in the debates in this country. When in power, the labor government embraced a lot of the conceptual framework of the current localism bill, albeit in a somewhat different form. The key ingredients of this conception can be simply stated. To decentralize power, no change whatsoever needs to be made to the organization of the national government or to its unlimited power to overrule local decision making. All the national government needs to do is enable more local government discretion, redesign the local government structure, and empower not just local governments but communities and neighborhoods to take more control of local services and decisions. Once this is done, the sharp distinction between central government and local government and the nature of the relationship between them can continue without modification. I'm going to describe the localism bill's version of this architecture of governance in some detail. You should know, however, that I'm not going to discuss the whole bill. As Richard said, it's more than 400 pages long. I'm going to focus on a, on a few of the key provisions that illustrate the, its way of allocating governmental power. Chapter 1 of the Localism Bill gives local authorities, county councils, district councils, London boroughs, and other similar bodies, but importantly not the Greater London Authority, a general power of competence. This provision is thought by both supporters and critics to be one of the most important features of the bill. A similar idea was supported by the Labour government, although the different wording of, the version, of its version turned out not to have the desired effect. The proposed general power of confidence is a reaction against the traditional notion, accepted in the United States as well as here, that localities have to rely on specific delegations of powers from the central government to act on behalf of the, their constituents. Giving localities a general power of competence is a way to avoid this requirement of an item-by-item -item delegation of power. The localism bill describes this general grant of power in striking and unusual terms. Localities, it provides, are given the power to do anything that individuals may do. And they may do so in any way whatever, anywhere in the UK or elsewhere. At first blush, this seems like a striking grant of local power, the kind of empowerment that anyone who believes in the decentralization of power would applaud. Giving localities a general power of competence is not a bad idea. But there's a good deal less in this proposal than meets the eye. The general power of competence is similar to what we call in the United States home rule. Every major city in the United States has been granted the power of home rule. But this grant has been given, given them a lot less authority than people here seem to think. One reason for this is that the power does not come with any financing to exercise it. In the United States, in the UK, it's worse than that because it comes with a dramatic loss of funding for local governments. A general grant of power means a lot less if you can't pay for the things you want to do. And the financing problem derives not just from the diminished amount of support from the central government. One item clearly excluded from the general power of competence, and also excluded from most grants of home rule in the United States, is the power to raise revenue. If local authorities want new taxes, they will still have to get a specific delegation from the central government, and that's not likely to happen. This exclusion of the power over revenue from the general power of confidence is not obvious from the first reading. There are other limitations that are not obvious. In the United States, the Home Rule grant to cities is limited to local matters. 
But most issues of concern to cities are not just local. They affect the region, the state, and even the nation. For that reason, a lot of what American cities want to do is not within their home rule grant. The general power of competence does not confine local authorities to local matters. Instead, the localism bill gives localities the power of an individual that can be exercised anywhere in the country. But local governments are not individuals. They are not going to marry and have kids. On the other hand, they might want to regulate the private sector, and individuals can't do that. The linking of the power of local authorities to the power of individuals is thus a limitation on local power as well as the grant of local power. There's going to be a lot of controversy about what this limitation means, just as there's a lot of controversy in the United States over the question of what issues can be considered local. Every grant of power is simultaneously a limitation on that power, a limitation defined by the words of the grant. Localism advocates think that the answer to these problems is to expand the definition of the general power of competence. The limitation they particularly focus on is the ability of national governments to overrule any local decision. But no country empowers localities in a way that the central government cannot control. Remember, the localism bill enables local authorities, by which we mean London boroughs, as well as local councils elsewhere, to exercise authority anywhere in the country. There has to be centralized control over this kind of local power, or there would be chaos. For similar reasons, state governments in the United States have the power to overrule most decisions made under home rule. Moreover, central control means more than just overruling local decisions. The localism bill makes clear as it must that any local decision has to be consistent with existing or future legislation enacted by the national government. Given how much central government legislation there is, local authorities in the UK, just like localities in the United States, will have to be very careful to ensure that what they do is consistent with national power. This kind of concern has dramatically limited the effect of home rule in the United States. This morning at 9 a.m., the Secretary of State for communities and local governments responding to questions for, uh, from Parliament responded to a question about the general power of confidence. The question was, can local authorities, now that they're treated as individuals, gamble and make political contributions? What is the answer to this question? You know the answer is no. You know the answer is no, although individuals can do that. Why is that? Because the Secretary of State said, there's nothing but statutes prevent them from doing that. Don't worry. But there's nothing from stat but statutes that prevent them from doing many other things, too. So worry. <laughs> the remarkable thing about the UK proposal is not the extent of this centralized control. That exists everywhere. But the way that it is to be exercised. Under the localism bill, the Secretary of State may, by order, prevent a local authority from doing anything he specifies in that order. This power is lodged on the Secretary of State without any legislative guidance or standards whatsoever. This kind of centralized control does not exist in the United States. We do not give a minister this kind of unlimited discretion. This degree of control suggests that the increase in local power enabled by the general grant of competence is likely to be a lot less than its supporters suggest. 
These limits on general power competence should be kept in mind when thinking about the localism bill's proposal for directly elected mayors. Like the labor government before it, the localism bill is not neutral about whether major cities in this country should have directly elected mayors. Disappointed by the refusal of most localities so far to adopt the idea, they propose setting up a shadow mayor in a dozen cities before holding a referendum, apparently in the hope that people will get used to the idea. The basic question is, are, are directly elected mayors a good idea? I think that depends on what the idea is. The localism bill limits the voters to two options, having a directly elected mayor or an indirectly elected leader with a cabinet. What's left out of this list? One way to begin to see what's left out is to consider a question the Manchester Evening News asked David Cameron last month. Why can't the people of Manchester, he was asked, be able not just to choose one of the two centrally prescribed options, but decide instead to elect a mayor of Greater Manchester, creating a position like Boris Johnson now holds for the mayor for Greater London? Cameron did not respond to this question. He simply said, you don't have to have a Manchester mayor if you don't want one. He then endorsed the idea of having an elected mayor, saying, and I quote, I want Manchester to be up there with Beijing and Shanghai as a major world player, and I think having an elected mayor will really help. But Beijing and Shanghai don't have elected mayors. <laughs> and their municipal government controls a territory much larger than Greater Manchester. Anyway, it seems odd for David Cameron to suggest that it's important for cities to have a directly elected mayor in order to have a dynamic leader when he himself, as a leader, is not directly elected. Still, having a directly elected mayor might be a good idea. Whether it is depends on a decision about how best to organize the allocation of power within the local authority, how much power should be given to the mayor and how much to a local council or legislature. There's no one definition of what having an elected mayor means. In the United States, some cities have strong mayors and others have weak ones. It's possible that the mayor will better embody the wishes of his constituents. It's possible that representatives of the neighborhoods and the local legislature would better represent them. The division of powers between the legislature and the executive defines what we mean by local democracy. It might be thought of as the basic local issue, but not under the localism bill. Local citizens are asked to vote on whether to have an elected mayor without knowing his powers and without being able to decide what they should be. Under the bill, the extent of mayoral power is determined by the Secretary of State, again, without any standards or guidelines whatsoever. Indeed, the Secretary of State can enable the mayor to perform any public service function simply by giving an order. True, once elected, a mayor could propose a list of the powers he should have, but oddly, only in his first year of office. In any event, the Secretary of State need not adopt the proposal. This scheme is very unlike the way the authority of the mayor of London was constituted. His power derives from an act of parliament, which is quite specific about what the London mayor can and cannot do. To be sure, as for the proposed new referenda, the people of London voted for a mayoral system in a referendum before, before knowing what the later act of parliament would enable the mayor to do. The upshot is that it's hard to tell 
whether the shift to direct elections would enhance local power without knowing how the Secretary of State is going to decide these issues. Moreover, no matter how powerful the mayor is when compared to the council, he cannot do more than the local authority is allowed to do, and that leads us back to the limits on the general power of competence. It has been suggested that the Secretary of State might give newly elected mayors powers now exercised by Quangos. That would give them more power. But it, if it's a good idea, it might be a good idea everywhere. And there's no indication that the same kind of transfer of power would be possible to strengthen the authority of an indirectly elected leader with a cabinet. This is another indication of the bill's effort to stack the deck between the options for local organization. So far in describing the localism bill's conception of decentralization, I've concentrated on the power of the Secretary of State, emphasizing the continued centralized control of local governments. But there's another innovation in the localism bill which threatens the power of elected governments from another angle. This is the bill's extensive reliance on local referenda. The use of this device as a way of choosing the nature of the local executive is just the beginning of the story. Referenda are also prescribed as a vehicle for limiting the authority, the authorities of power to raise council taxes, and more generally, as a mechanism for setting policy on local issues. To limit taxes, the localism bill requires local billing authorities to determine whether proposed council tax is excessive, and if it is, to submit the excessive tax to the voters for approval or rejection. Who do you think defines what excessive means under the bill? The Secretary of State. The impact of this referendum procedure is not hard to guess. People vote taxes down. The revenue problem for localities, however, may be that they need more money, not less. Nothing in the bill allows a referendum to increase the amount of revenue that the central government provides or stop cutbacks in their services. And the central government is the primary source of local revenue. The referendum procedure thus works only one way. It limits the authority of elected governments to generate income, but doesn't help them pay for the services they provide. The referendum process for local issues is an even more important limit on the power of elected authorities. It requires a referendum whenever a valid petition asks for one. The localism bill requires that the petition be signed by 5% of the voters, although the Secretary of State can raise or lower this number. Once the petition is filed, the authority can refuse to hold the referendum on only four grounds. That it's illegal. That it's not a local issue, as defined by the Secretary of State. That the Secretary of State has determined it should not be held. Or that it is vexatious or, and abusive. In other words, the local authority cannot reject the referendum on the grounds that it harms the social and economic well-being of the community. Or has a negative impact on good governance. Grounds the Birmingham City Council has suggested adding. The local bill's expansion of the use of referenda has generally been embraced by both supporters and critics of the bill as an attempt to promote local democracy. I want to suggest this primary effect is to limit the power of elected government. Imposing on localities a referenda process is a way that central governments shift power from elected governments to popular votes. In the United States, we've seen this all too clearly in California. For 30 years, popular votes have controlled significant parts of the government agenda. They have, for example, limited the amount the government's ability to raise revenue and at the same time mandated that it spend money for specific purposes. It's no surprise that this simultaneous limit on income and mandate of expenses has generated a fiscal crisis. 
and many other local government policies, not just fiscal matters, are resolved by referendum in California. The way I see it, the localism bill represents an effort to bring about the Californiization of the United Kingdom. Although the referendum is long been heralded as the true expression of democracy, it's a particular kind of democracy. Referendum, usually written by interest groups, are often badly drafted and hard to implement. Whether they pass is often affected by the amount of money available to the two sides. Worse still, in the referendum process, unlike in the legislative process, there's no mechanism that engages every decision maker in a debate about the issue before the vote. No process that allows amendments based on the information generated by the debate. No process that allows negotiation between the two sides. No process that ensures the issue being decided is put in the context of other demands on the government. Ordinary people are asked for an up or down vote on a matter of great complexity without relating the issue to other priorities, even other priorities voted on in the same election. And they vote on the issue privately, in the isolation of the voting booth, with a secret ballot, without having to account to anyone for why they're voting the way they are. No doubt the referenda have their virtues. But as California demonstrates, they should also have their limits. The localism bill also establishes another mechanism that transfers authority away from elected local governments. This is the community right to challenge. This provision enables a wide variety of people, a community group, a nonprofit, a charity, two or more employees of the local authority, and others the Secretary of State might specify, to express interest in providing a service that the local authority now provides. The authority can reject the expression of interest only on grounds specified by the Secretary of State. If it accepts it, the local authority must initiate a process controlled by the Secretary of State designed to transfer the service. The exact nature of this process has not been specified, but it's bound to include other parties, including profit-making ventures, interested in offering the service. Like the vote on the council tax, the community right to challenge works in only one direction. It can remove services from elected government, but it cannot add them. Of course, even now, this kind of privatization of local services is well underway, both in the United States and in the UK. The innovation of the localism bill is that it takes the privatization decision out of the hands of local authorities and into the hands of a process initiated by petition and designed by the Secretary of State. Many supporters of the decentralization of power embrace this mechanism as they embrace the referendum as a step toward local empowerment. But as in the case of the referendum, I want to add a word of caution. This mechanism undermines the power of local elected governments. Democratic elected governments certainly have their defect, but we have an idea of how they can be accountable. That idea is called democracy. We have much less of an idea when we use words like community and local people as the vehicle for exercising a decentralized power. Here's a quote from the coalition document, Building the Big Society, quote, we want to give citizens, communities, and local government the power and information they need to come together to solve the problems they face. We want society, the families, networks, neighborhoods, and communities that form the fabric of our everyday lives to be bigger and stronger than ever before. Only when people and communities are given more power and take more responsibilities can we achieve fairness and opportunity for all, end quote.
Although local governments are included in this list, they are seen as something different from communities and people and networks. What's a community? Who legitimately represents the people? What's it mean to empower families or networks in a democratic society? To whom are any of these groups accountable? There are no answers to these questions in the localism bill. There may be no answers to these questions at all. But one thing is clear from the localism bill, a brace of this community right to challenge. Enacted, elected local governments will be smaller. Don't get me wrong. I value local organizations, voluntary associations, and families. But elected democratic governments are valuable human invention too. And we should be very careful before we discard it. One of the longest parts of the localism bill, one I don't have time to discuss, is the abolition of regional planning bodies and the emphasis instead on neighborhood planning. Defenders of localism often brace neighborhoods like communities and local people as a source of power. One can see why they might. This is not the right group to decide what the surrounding area looks like. But concentrating on the immediate neighborhood is also odd. Neighborhoods can be very parochial. What's good for a neighborhood may not be good for the city or region as a whole. Indeed, the most significant limit on the power of neighborhoods and local authorities is the power of other neighborhoods and local authorities. Their power to develop in a way that undermines the prosperity of their neighbors. Local authorities have the power to prefer themselves over their neighbors only because the national or state government has allowed them to engage in this kind of competition. Regional planning is one of the mechanisms for dealing with the problems generated by this structure. No doubt, it can be designed badly to be just one more bureaucratic, centralized government undertaking. But it also can be designed to enable neighborhoods and cities to work together rather than against each other. The localism bill seeks to recognize the importance of cooperation by imposing a duty on local authorities to cooperate with each other about sustainability, with guidance, of course, provided by the Secretary of State about what cooperation means. But if the structure of local governance is set up to create a competitive, neighborhood-focused world, how will cooperation occur? There is a difference between a duty to cooperate and an institution designed and empowered to make cooperation happen. It's time to summarize. The architecture of governance, embraced by the parts of the localism bill I've discussed. The localism bill provides for control, for control over local authorities from above. The astounding power exercised without any statutory criteria by the Secretary of State. I've given only a few examples of this power. The local government associations found that the bill contains 142 order and regulation making provisions giving power to the Secretary of State. Local bill also provides for control over local authorities from below. Imposed by control on the elected government imposed by referenda and by communities and other groups seeking to take over local services. Finally, there's the competition from neighboring jurisdictions, no longer subject to regional process and limited only by the duty to cooperate. Faced with these pressures from above, below, and the sides, and faced with a loss of funding and no revenue-raising powers, local authorities are likely to see privatization as the most reliable way forward. Admittedly, local authorities have been armed with the general power of competence and perhaps an elected mayor. Even so, the localism bill does not seem to me the best way to strengthen the power of elected local government. 
I think we need another way to think about the relationship between local and national governments. The alternative requires rethinking the nature of the centralized, central government, as well as of local authorities, and at the same time rethinking the relationship between them. To begin sketching this alternative architecture of governments, I want to quote from the South African Constitution. Chapter 3, Section 40 of the Constitution provides that in South Africa, the government is constituted as national, provincial, and local spheres of government which are distinctive, interdependent, and interrelated. We need to go over the sentence slowly. There's a lot in it. Sentence embraces the idea of national, provincial, and local governments, but calls them spheres, not levels. It's not presented as a hierarchy. Each has its own role to play. The idea of spheres is very different from the traditional conception of government that I've discussed. Under current law, parliament or state legislature in the United States can delegate power, refuse to delegate power to local governments any way it wants. The South African Constitution opens up a possibility of another way to allocate power to the different spheres of government. Having labeled these aspects of government spheres, the South African Constitution then says that each of them is distinctive. The word distinctive is designed to demonstrate the importance of the differences among the spheres. Each of them has their own contribution to make. This gesture toward distinctiveness does not grant local autonomy. The very next word in the Constitution, after all, is interdependent. If the spheres are interdependent, none of them can be autonomous. The idea of interdependence recognizes that each of the spheres always affects what the others do. Finally, the Constitution says that the spheres are interrelated, a word that suggests the need for cooperation among them. Given their distinctiveness and interdependence, the different spheres of government need to be organized in a way that enables them to work together. What this means, I think, is that the Constitution envisions managing intergovernmental relations through a political process, rather than as a hierarchy or a fixed division of authority. Now that I've read the provisions in the South African Constitution slowly, it might be helpful for me to repeat the whole sentence again. In South Africa, the Constitution provides, the government is constituted as national, provincial, and local spheres of government, which are distinctive, interdependent, and interrelated. Okay, you might say, I get the words. What do they mean? To answer this question, we need to move from the very abstract language of the South African Constitution to the question of implementation, the puzzle of figuring out how to design an architecture of governance with this idea in mind. As I've already said, I'm going to discuss this puzzle as a general matter. There are and should be countless ways to design such a structure. I'm also not going to focus on the peculiarities of how the idea is working out in South Africa. The issue of implementation in South Africa are not the same as those that will be faced elsewhere. I want to explore the implementation question in a more fundamental way. I want to do so through the words distinctive, interdependent, and interrelated. What's distinctive about local government is its deep connections to people's lives. A large part of everyday life is affected by the nature of the area in which people live. The quality of education, the safety of the streets, the affordability and quality of housing, the availability of clean water, the access to jobs, the vitality of public space, these are critical matters in defining who we are and who we become. When these kind of issues go unaddressed, the chances, life chances of local residents are diminished. If, on the other hand, local governments can demonstrate they are making progress on these issues, trust in them is likely to increase. These days, local governments' inability to connect with people on these kinds of matters generate the current demand for popular votes and the transfer of services to communities. These alternatives are based on the idea that since government can't do anything, we have to take matters into our own hands. I think, instead, 
that we need to make elected local government work better. The distinctiveness of state, regional, and national governments lies elsewhere. It lies in the ability to take a broader view of the same problems that localities face. Part of this broader view includes, involves including the concerns of neighborhood localities, concerns that are often overlooked by people worried about their own city. Part of it also comes from the fact that we need expertise in public policy decision making. Democracy is not simply a matter of public opinion polls or snap judgments made by people when they cast a ballot. Experiments in political science have demonstrated that people change their minds about issues when they are exposed to other people's views and information provided by experts. Other people know things you don't. It's this quite obvious point that has helped generate the current reliance on quangos. The problem with quangos is that they tend to eliminate the role of ordinary people in public policy decisions. The problem with referenda is they tend to eliminate the role of experts. It's all too easy to value one of these distinctive ingredients of public policy decisions making at the expense of the other. Democratic governance needs to be built on a different foundation. Experts shouldn't decide public policy, but neither should uninformed voters. Democratic government has to bring the two together. Each is distinctive, and each is necessary. We reach quickly then the idea of interdependence. We have to organize democratic government in a way that honors both local sentiment and the broader view at the same time. You may think I've started to spout a meaningless democratic slogan, but a recognition of both distinctiveness and interdependence is even now one of the basic theoretical building blocks of how state and national legislatures are constituted. Central governments are now elected locally around the world. Why is that? It's critical that they are. The reason is that the central governments are thought of as ways of bringing the localities together. Central governments are mechanisms that allow people who are locally responsible to hammer out agreements notwithstanding their differences. Although the decision makers are chosen by localities, no locality is able to decide issues simply by itself. The other localities are also in the room and they too are part of the process. So are experts. Experts testify, executive officials push their agenda, private sector lobbies. This picture of democratic government is not accurately described as being either bottom-up or top-down. It's both. It's bottom-up because the decision-makers are local. It's top-down because the decisions are being made by all local representatives collectively and can be opposed on dissenting localities without their consent. We should stop talking about governance as if the design choice were between bottom-up and top-down. These two concepts are not the opposites of each other. Both are part of the process. The critical issue is figuring out how to connect the top and the bottom, how to deal with their interdependence. That's the way nations are formed. Although the conception of democratic governance I have just outlined is familiar, the problem with the current architecture of democratic governance is that it's no longer working the way I've just described. Parliaments and state legislators may be locally elected, but they don't actually represent localities in the decision-making process. Central government has taken on a life of its own. And the localities have become, at best, ineffective lobbyists. Central government decisions are not the product of interlocal negotiation and compromise. Party discipline has replaced the idea of local representation. It's party discipline that enables the Secretary of State to wield the power conferred on him by the localism bill. Given the structure, localities have sought to defend themselves against the central government. And their defense has been based on the language of local autonomy. In other words, rather than attempting to reform the organization of the central government so that it better reflects their concerns, they seek to escape from its grasp. 
I think this is the wrong strategy. As my discussion of the general power of competence should suggest, the goal of local autonomy cannot be achieved. In fact, it's a bad idea. But the current form of centralized decision-making, decision-making made without genuine local input, is a bad idea too. Let's consider an example of how local and central governments can be organized in a better way, in a way that recognizes their interdependence. I want to use as my example the currently popular idea, if only in urban planning circles, of regional government. These days, regionalism is usually presented as a form of centralization. Cities are no longer relevant, advocates, advocates insist. It's the metropolitan area that's real now. If so, we need to create a regional entity that can make effective decisions about transportation, housing, and jobs, decisions that will disregard the now outdated city lines. It's not surprising this conception of regionalism has gone nowhere in the United States and has had difficulty gaining traction in many other countries as well. Ordinary people in their neighborhoods and cities properly see this as just one more form of centralization, one more level of government staffed by people who think of themselves as experts, who want to tell people how to lead their daily lives. But there's no reason that regionalism has to define this way. I'm a proponent of regionalism, but not as a form of centralized control. I envision regionalism as a mechanism for exercising interlocal power, as a way of empowering the region's cities, not eliminating them. Localities currently lack power because they're often quite properly thought of as parochial. Regionalism will allow them to become less parochial if the region decision-making body is organized to enable localities to meet with each other and forge a common policy. One form this conception of regionalism can take in the United States, I've argued, is the creation of a regional legislature in which the cities themselves are represented. Since the region's cities vary widely in population, the larger cities would have more say than the smaller ones. But every city in the room, every city would be in the room, and each would participate in the formulation of public policy. This structure would not create a form of local autonomy. Localities would not be able to do anything they want. The regional legislature would have authority over all of its member localities. But the decision makers would be the localities themselves. If the localities are in charge, they're likely to want to decentralize power as much as they can. But they will be able to do so only if each locality is seen not just as distinctive but independent. To gain allies, localities will have to take into account the impact of decentralization not just on themselves, but on others as well. Why, you might ask, wouldn't this structure create a form of paralysis of its own? It might. It depends on how it's designed. And it depends on how we seek to retrofit it once it's built and the leaks in the roof start to become noticeable, I want localities to learn that the only way to increase local power is to work with their neighbors rather than to work against them. To increase their power, they need collectively to become the centralized decision-making body rather than seeking to protect themselves from it. The regional legislature has to be designed to change what we mean by central government and through its collective decision-making process to change what we mean by local government. This is what distinctive and interdependent mean to be, combining local concerns with interlocal knowledge and perspective. I want to be clear. I'm not proposing that this idea be adopted by every city in the world. I'm not even proposing for it for every city in the United States. Even in the United States, the proper form of metropolitan organization will differ from region to region, and in some places, my suggestion will have to be rethought completely. What I'm suggesting to you is simply an idea, an architect's drawing, one filled with problems and ambiguities, offered to generate thought rather than the start of construction. I don't know enough to discuss examples of this kind of structure in this country. 
But I do want you to see that this kind of idea that I've just proposed can be a useful starting point for the organization's fears of government everywhere. City councils and other local legislatures are usually elected by district. But, as in London, the districts have no meaning whatsoever other than for the purpose of these elections. We're still, local legislatures are often given very little power, a strong mayor, thought to be a better idea. National governments are even less responsive to their constituent parts. In recent years, this unresponsiveness has led to increasing calls for secession, the breaking up of countries around the world. Proponents of secession have embraced autonomy as the answer to national conflict. But in our interconnected world, autonomy will not protect them. They, will, they would get more protection, I think, if their effort instead was to change the way the national government operate, to get them to recognize both the distinctiveness and the interdependence of different people, including different people from within the same country. In case you think I'm talking, that you think talking about the nation state in this way is too romantic, I want to tell you a short story. In mid-2010, the federal government in the United States promulgated nationwide standards for English and math from kindergarten through high school. This was quite remarkable. Since education has traditionally been thought of in the United States as the quintessential local function, nevertheless these standards have been widely accepted. Why is that? I think one important reason lies in the way that the standards were formulated. Rather than being imposed on the states from above, they were generated by the states. They were negotiated over the course of two years by state officials. Then, rather than simply being issued as commands from the national government, the procedure for adopting them was to have the standards enacted state by state. More than 40 states have done so. Not all states have agreed to them. Some won't adopt them. Nevertheless, the key to the widespread support for them, I suggest, was organizing national policy by bringing the states together, by uniting the states, and having them work out policy differences themselves. This story is very unusual in the United States. It's not how national policy is ordinarily made. That's why it's important. I want to end this talk with a few words about the third term in the South African Constitution, interrelated. Current relations among different levels of government are rarely based on what might be called mutual respect. Too often local views are simply disregarded by central governments or not even solicited. In return, neighborhood people don't respect central officials either. Rage against others is all the rage these days. At the same time, more and more people dismiss politics as a way of solving social problems. To say that a pro proposal is just politics is to say it's not on the merits. Politics, however, has another meaning, one too many have forgotten. Politics is our mechanism for collective problem solving. A primary reason that politics is not performing this function, at least in the United States, is that politics has become just another vehicle for expressing rage and distrust. This attitude has to change for democratic government to work better. You may think I'm beginning to sound like President Obama. In fact, I am. His problem is that he doesn't have a way to change how politics is practiced in the United States. Political attitudes are shaped by the way we've organized the government, by the architecture of governments. Changing this architecture will not be easy, but doing so is a way to build a different kind of politics. It would be quite a change if the national and state governments actually respected the ideas offered by local governments. And it would be quite a change as well if the respect was returned in kind. Perhaps the biggest problem facing any reform of the structure of democratic governance is one not mentioned in the South African Constitution. I'm referring not to the problem of designing a new governance system in any particular context or even how to accomplish the problem politically. Big as these problems are, there's an even, one even more serious. 
We need to design our government system in a way that it can be changed when its defects become apparent. As architects know, when designing a building, it's not easy to ensure that it can be retrofitted. Many buildings seem to defy being reused for other purposes, the only option that seems to tear them down. Retrofitting is harder still for governance mechanisms. Many of our current government institutions were designed decades, even centuries ago. Everyone realized that there were problems with how they work. And no one thinks that a radical change in the whole system, particularly along the lines I've been suggesting, could happen all at once. The problem is that we do not have a way for redesigning the structure to be a regular, routine part of governance. So, instead of trying to redesign it, we create a series of additions to an otherwise unquestioned structure. We create a governance version of sprawl, badly organized, fragmented, dysfunctional. We thereby feed the lack of confidence in governance and its reform, and at the same time, we feed the dysfunction that makes reform harder to accomplish. The only escape from this cycle is to begin, to begin to think about the architecture of governance, and then step by step, government by government, work on redesigning it. Thank you. Thank, thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm sure you'll be led into the country again. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, maybe I can just take the privilege of the chair to, to make a comment and uh, ask a question. Uh, the comment is that I think what you've made abundantly clear with this localism bill is a central phenomenon of Thatcherism, which is the strengthening of self uh, of centralized control while removing uh, re, uh, uh, resources from the center that are uh, uh, spread to the rest of the society. Uh, this bill, in a way, is a perfectly Thatcherite uh, document in, in that sense. Um, uh, my question to you is the following. I was very struck by um, your, your, your recurse to, to South Africa as an alternative way to think. Um, not only because normally we, don't, we wouldn't do that, Europe or the United States, but also because its cities um, are, raise a problem which in the West we don't have. There's sheer size. Uh, Johannesburg is variously estimated be, as a city between 11 and 14 million people. Many of the cities that LSE Cities has been uh, concerned with, India Mex or in Mexico City, for example, are cities that are 20, 24, 28 million. These are cities on a scale that simply has no uh, reference today. And I wonder if the problem of these uh, um, spheres of governance is related to the fact of the size of these cities which look, which are themselves states, which are, uh, which are so large 
that the models that we've used in the West simply don't apply? Or would you... I mean, I understand why, in other words, yeah, so, I mean, what, why the South Africans I, I, would I'm, do it. I, first of all, I'm talking about the South African Constitution, right. written in 1994. They have the advantage, unlike the people in the United States, to have read all the constitutions in the world and to think about them yeah. in a way that you know people in Philadelphia in 1787 didn't do. So they rethought the ideas it's true that in South Africa to implement these ideas is an incredible thing, and not just because of the size of the city, but, but also because of the heritage of apartheid, the, the overwhelming heritage of apartheid that they were faced with from the beginning and still are. But as to the size of cities, any large city, and this is true with Johannesburg, but certainly Beijing and Shanghai, Cameron's two favorite cities, uh, is you have to understand them through the districts, which they do have districts in Shanghai and and from the districts to the neighborhood. I mean, you have to build a structure in which the city is the combined the districts and the, and the country is the combined cities. You have to build these things. So it's true. Once you have a government of 20 million people, you're, you're, it's very hard to think about it as a dem democracy. That's why you have to start building. But the districts can't each decide on their own. They can't all be their own islands. They have to, this is the idea of interrelated and interdependent. You can't decentralize power just to the boroughs. They're next to each other. That's not the ideal. But on the other hand, the London, Greater London Assembly is not organized borough by, by having all the boroughs of representative. They're not. They combine the boroughs into a district, presumably to weaken the assembly, which they did. <laughs> uh, so. I, I think, you know, the size of a country, the vast sizes, you have to build democracy at the local level. I believe in the local level, but not in terms, not in terms of some large centralized government or in terms of autonomy, neither one. Do you mean by local face-to-face? -face? No, not necessarily. I don't think, if you, I mean, face-to-face -face seems a little ideal. What I mean local is some way in which you, you can actually have some concept of talking to people. That there's some, you know where the meeting is even if you don't go, right? That there's some, I think there's some geographic idea, which is the idea of, presumably, the background idea of the districts and the boroughs in a lot of places in the world. I mean, they, they, they think that there is a concept, but they're very big. So then you need sub-governments. But I don't think down to face-to-face, -face, hmm. that seems a little much. So... Questions, can you uh, identify who you are and be brief? <laughs> this gentleman, first I'll get to you all. Uh, my name is Mark Flessing. Uh, I run a company called Pocket that develops intermediate housing and therefore has to deal a lot with local and national politicians. I, I'd like to um, make a, a, a footnote based upon a conversation that I had with a member of the Conservative uh, Party who now sits in the Cabinet six months before the elections in which I pointed out that localism as defined by the Conservatives at that point would be a get-out-of-jail card to the NIMBYs in this country in terms of development. And he turned around and said, what's so terribly wrong with that? Mark, he said, you have to understand, we are inheriting a bankrupt government that has no money to pay for the schools and the roads and the public infrastructure 
that a program of active development would require over the next five years. And it was at that point that I recognized that actually much of localism, and it's reflected in a very poorly thought through bill, is going to be used by the conservatives within the coalition as the veil that they require for inactivity from the state down. And it's a point you don't make. I don't think... Do you want to comment on on that? Yeah. Uh, So I think in the UK, but also more generally, a long-term project is to starve the government of resources, which then requires privatization. In other words, if the government has no resources, you go where the money is, and that's where the money is. You say, well, the government has no money, so we have to. That's a a project. That's a project. And when the government doesn't have any money, we're including not just the national government, but all the central governments by by cutting their money, not giving them resident raising funds, and moving their services. In other words, the the project is to... to undermine elected government as the alternative. That's what I'm against. In other words, we have this idea of democracy, which I think is a valuable form of social organization, which is undermined by this project. But it is a project. Question here. Can you bring your microphone? Can you identify yourself, please? Uh, Nicola Hedlund from the University of Manchester. I've actually just written a thesis about uh, city regional governance in Manchester, which I just had examined. So, um, certainly, the, when I asked the leader there about mayors, his response was, what difference would it make to my ability to get things done, bugger all? So that's kind of the view from Manchester. I just wanted to ask about your proposition, which was this notion of the kind of municipal congress almost, yeah. because your opening remarks were about anything that leaves the central to local balance unchanged wouldn't wouldn't do it in your view how would I mean in a sense you're talking about a municipal congress and how does that connect with the congress congress so the basic idea is to make the central more local and to make the local more central (laughs) more national like more outward looking right so the central government is now not responsive to localities so an inner local central government is a different beast the local, look, this is what I think. Central governments have the power. They will continue to have the power. That's it. So we need to take them over. We need to be the central governments. That means you can't do what you want because you have to work with your neighbors. In other words, that's the Congress of the municipal mm-hmm. But that's a good thing. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the not NIMBY point, right? You have to work with your neighbors, you can't be so nimble. That's the, the structure generates a different attitude. That's what it means to make the local more national. Right? So it's changing the nature of both as an empowerment strategy for localities. An empowerment strategy for localities is to seize the Senate. Which again, you know, we elect Congresses by locality. I mean, it's not, I'm not making this up. It's a, <laughs> there's a long history of locally elected national same things. I mean, right? It just doesn't work that way anymore. We have a question down here. Can you bring your microphone all the way to the front? Can you identify yourself? Though I know who you are, others don't. Uh, thank you. Philip uh, Rode from uh, LSE Cities. 
many thanks, uh, Jerry. I, I think I was sort of inspired by your juxtaposition to come up with a sort of a thesis I want to test with you. And you, you compared the transition in South Africa, which is a transition from a non-democratic uh, regime towards uh, a democratic, to a situation here in the UK where we are reforming under a democratic momentum. And you're sort of associating the first as a success story and the second as a potential failure. My question to you is, to which extent do you believe the institutional reform we, we would need uh, can actually be run under a democratic process? Um, is, yes. I think, no, I, I don't, that's definitely not the story I would tell. I mean, I, I think the South African Constitution came out of a democratic process. It came in light of, a, of an authoritarian government, after authoritarian government. But they worked for several years in a very incredible democratic process to frame this constitutional idea and to create a constitutional court and all the rest of it. So I, I actually see it as, as enabled by democracy and not by authoritarianism. I think it would be a much harder to implement my idea in China than it would be in the UK. <laughs> yes, right back here. This gentleman here. Can you tell us who you are? Ramesh Shukla. Um, I'm just uh, simply a layman, and um, so well, my question may reflect uh, some ignorance on my part. Please bear with it. <clears throat> but what I uh, gathered from you that the good government is interactive government. That is, more interactive the government is, better government it is. Um, interactive and interdependent between local and, and what you call uh, local and central, better balance between the uh, uh, and it's high degree of interaction, I, I think, makes better government. Now, I'd like to ask you a broader question. What is the role of culture in the architecture of governance? And that, um, um, and whether this uh, requirement or need for localism, does it arise from the, uh, from the heterogeneity of culture? That the, uh, uh, that the uh, nation is covering? Thank you. Well, that's a very, it's not a layman's question, whatever you say about yourself. I mean, so there, there, there's, there's two questions. What's the role of culture in the architecture of governance? And then what's the role of the architecture of governance in the creation of culture? Both questions, right? And I don't know the answer so to either the one. Answer? I don't know the answer to either <laughs> one, right? But I think that, I mean, the, 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 the description of what I'm trying to give is, I think there's a, there is a trained localism that we've learned, which you've called nimbyism. I mean, right? we, you learn how to protect yourself against your neighbors. You learn how to do that. But you can also learn how to be a neighbor. You can learn how to do that too. And so the, the, culture, the culture is affected by the government and the government is affected by the culture. And so for me then the question becomes, I think it's very deeply cultural, in other words. It's all very deeply cultural. But what is our mechanism for modifying culture? How do we get a hold of culture? Well, there's, there's, it's a complicated question and I'm sitting next to a sociologist, so I won't answer it, but I just want to say one thing. Government is a one of the ways. It's a vehicle. It's one of the vehicles for cultural transformation. Not the only one, and it often doesn't work, but it's a vehicle. In that regard, you, you, you've all disappointed me. Nobody has asked Professor Frug what building this looks like. He's called this an architecture of government. 
Maybe you'll ask him this question. No, he doesn't have to ask this question. <laughs> I am Mr. Bonf. I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development. I think the approach you described is a distribution of power is, uh, I mean, I fully support because this is the only way that you can create a sustainable development. You can develop strategies. You can then develop governance. You can monitoring. You can integrate it, the bottom with up with the top, and, and vice versa. But I think all of this basis is should be supported some kind of bottom up, but the bottom up of knowledge of the area, knowledge, the, understanding better the information from knowledge point of view, from economic, social, and build this governance structure. And I think fully support is. Uh, there's, for instance, in the European Union, the approach is multi-level governance does not work. And this is the last 50 years has demonstrated north and south, both in Europe as well as in each individual countries. And that's the right approach. That's why I do support and I would like to have your further comment on this one. Thank you. So Local knowledge is a critical ingredient in the whole thing. I agree with that. But local knowledge has to be compared with other people's local knowledge, right? I mean, in other words, it's not our one's own local is only the beginning of the conversation. It's incredibly important, and a lot of the decisions are taken without knowledge of it. It's true. Uh, so for me, then, it gets very quickly in, into thinking about the interlocal bringing our knowledge to bear, and then learning from other people, including experts, including experts, right? Learning from other people. So that is, a, that is the structure. Just one other thing. The, in, in conferences these days on these kinds of topics, people want to look at you soberly and say there's a difference between government and governance. This is thought to be very <laughs> insightful. Uh, what it usually means, governance, is some retreat from government, what it usually means and the empowerment of communities, people, networks. And I always get a little nervous until I have the, their identities. Here's another word, stakeholders. <laughs> Here's the question about stakeholders. The point, the point about it, we know kind of who stakeholders are. They're businessmen and maybe interest groups. We know who they're not, ordinary people. Ordinary people are not stakeholders, but they're the ones who vote in a democratic society, right? So the move away from trying to think about how the local knowledge is to be transmitted is the issue. I agree right. with that. Right. Can we have uh, right here, and then I'll take you after that. You'll be the final question. Hello. Um, I'm Theresa Hoskins. I'm from the Bartlett UCL. Um, you're talking about the local as being sandwiched almost between the national and or local government and the community level. And I just wondered what role, um, especially due to democracy now, which seems to be really rising um, community uh, on a global level, what role you think cities could or the global could play in um, city democracy? Because for me, I think the city has much more of a relationship with the global than it does with the Very national. Because cities are, um, and it seems to me that participatory democracy is rising but, uh, with global networks rather than on a local neighborhood level. 
I think it's a very profound question and a very difficult question. And there's a romantic way of understanding this, which is that the global is interested in participation. And then there's a less romantic way, that the global is interested in developing oil rigs. Right. What is the global? So I think that, in fact, the global has an enormous influence on a lot of city thinking and national thinking in the world today, for sure. You can go talk to these people. They sound alike. You travel and they sound alike. There's a, there's a general discourse. What worries me about the global is who are they? I have some of the same reaction to the global as I do to the word community. I don't know what a community is. It's a feel-good word. Oh, no. No, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. But I don't know. I mean, is there? I'm, I'm a member. Of, I'm a member of many communities. I don't know what they all are, even. And so, so, I think the global is going to have a real role to play. And therefore, what I'm interested in is more democratization of the global. In other words, the global can be understood as just words for the World Bank, or until two days ago, the IMF. Uh, but it's not what we mean, right? It's not what we want to mean. But it's an idea of the global in this world. It is. This lady back here. Can you? Yes, that's it. Can you identify yourself? Hi, I'm Kripal, uh, working for Halgros, a development planner. Uh, two questions for you. The first one being, um, in the UK context, going back to the localism bill, what would be the role of the social networking? Could you speak sites? up a little or put the microphone closer yeah. to you? What would be the role of the social networking sites and all these? Uh -huh. um, and what implications will that have on either enhancing social exclusion or even to an extent like not physical ghettoism but something like that? Um, but I mean obviously it will be business for these networking sites. The next question is um, to do with the regional model that you were talking about. Um, how do you think the local strategic partnership that's been talked about in the context of localism bill, is that sort of a sub-sub-sub-regional model? So uh, social movements, incredibly important part of any transformation idea. They just are. Uh, it, it is the it, it's and you can actually you know find people involved in them. We kind of know what we're talking about when we talk about these things. For me, the question about social movements is how do they get something done? What's the mechanism of implementation of their agenda? How are we going to actually accomplish what we're trying to accomplish? And we have a traditional method of implementation, which is called government. And what concerns me about the, the, the social movements, but also social movement theorists, is they don't talk about government. And the government people don't talk about social movements. Both the social movements, the thing the government is something over there, and the, 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 the academics are split too, right? So I'm trying to link the social movements and the government as an implementation device. That's really what I'm trying to do. I, that you have to, at the end of the day, I actually, you know, there are communities then. At the end of the day, in a community, you gotta get, you gotta find somebody with power to do something. We gotta find out who that is. Uh, I'm not saying government's the only vehicle, it's not. But I wouldn't want to throw it away. Joe, the question is about social networking. Oh, social networking. Net networking. Oh, I, mis I misunderstood that. 
Social networking. Oh, my. So that's a whole different question, right? I gave a this long was speech. a very nice answer. I gave a long speech <laughs> to the wrong question. The question about social networking, I don't know. Um, it's very complicated to try to do. So it's, it's a question that comes up in every time I teach this course, right? Because for a lot of my students, the real is the social network and not the neighborhood. They experience themselves as actually not where they actually are because they're online. Right? So I don't know how that's going to be translated into political action. So in some way, my answer to the wrong question uh, is, direct, is, is redirected. So we you know, collectively do things. But you think about what's happening in the Arab world. Very exciting. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to build an institution in which the people are going to actually control in some way. We have an institutional design problem at the most urgent level, right? And the social networking can generate a lot of things. It has generated a lot of things. But at the end of the day, we need some institution building capacity. So in that sense, it's a related. Uh, let's see. We'll take one final question. That's from this gentleman down here. Wait for the mic when we get all of this on our podcast. Philip Clifford from um, London Councils. Um, it's kind of slightly more prosaic, but um, I share your concerns about um, the localism bill and kind of local authority lobbying groups. I would, um, you know, if you look at the community right to challenge, where you know governors quite happy to take powers away or you know challenge local authorities, but spares its own central services from any kind of form of challenge. Um, to what extent do you think um, efforts like the, you know, by the Constitutional and Political Reform Committee to codify the relationship between local authorities and um, central government offers a way out of that, offers potential to kind of establish um, the, the groundwork for the mutual respect you describe in the South African context? I don't know quite what the, what the codification idea is that you're referring to. Oh, it's, um, it's work being considered by um, Graham Allen and the Political and Constitutional Reform Committee at the moment to look at a changes to the Parliament Act to reconstitute local authority or local government on an equal or not subordinate status with um, central government. Well, I mean, roughly speaking, I have to, you have to read it. I mean, okay. I mean it's a little, it, it all sounds pretty good. And indeed, when we talk about South Africa, it sounded pretty good, but how real is it? I mean, how real is it? And in South Africa, it's not very real, actually. Because they've been, I mean, they have a lot of problems, and this is not number one, or number two, or number three. I mean, they're not, so, and they have a one-party state, and, you know, I mean, they're in a different position than, than a lot of people uh, in other countries. So, so uh, there is going to be central control of some kind. Right. And I think the question is, who are those guys? How are we selecting? I mean, we're trying to identify. We now actually can go find them. We know who they are. We can see them on television, on the internet. We can see them on the internet. I mean, we can. So, but I don't know that they're the right cast of characters because they really lose the ability, the connection with the with. They lose the connection with the local, no matter what happens. They've lost the connection, and I want to re institutionalize that connection. Hmm. There's a one, one more over here in the corner. Okay, you'll be, you'll be the absolute last. Uh, Ms. Ataku, from public person. Can there be a true architecture of governance in the silence of um, conscience and um, the age of wealth accumulation? In the age of wealth accumulation. 
i.e. capitalism. <laughs> Where is capitalism in this discussion? Well, James Mill thought, <laughs> and his son said this too, actually, but James Mill said it more succinctly, that if you had democracy, they would just take all the money from the rich people, you know? Because there are more people than rich people. You can't have a property, no property qualifications for the vote. Because if you had democracy, the people would just take all the rich people's money. Now, it turns out it didn't happen. <laughs> turned out it didn't happen. But I still think that democracy is the most radical idea there is. Democracy is a radical idea. Empowering people regardless of their wealth, regardless of their education, regardless of anything. Empowering people to choose their own leaders is a radical idea. And it could have a very, it have, could have an effect on the structure of capitalism and wealth accumulation. <laughs> it could. I don't know what else is going to have a structure, a, a modification of the structure of capitalism, wealth accumulation, other than democratic reform. I think, and, and I think, so, uh, so, one way of understanding your question is, how did it happen that James Mill was wrong? How did it happen that democracy actually has not threatened the wealthy, but enabled them? Welcome to the London School of Economics. These are complicated issues. <laughs> Can we leave on that note, which is a very good summary for, uh, for this discussion, this discussion, and thank uh, Gerald Fruit for a really wonderful presentation. Uh, this evening.